November 7th, 2018. An anarchist dies in an attack on the Russian FSB. Trump escalates his threats against anti-fascists and the migrant caravan. And how is there any hope at all left in voting on this episode of... The Hotwire, a weekly anarchist news show brought to you by The Ex-Worker. With me, The Rebel Girl. And with me, The Riot Dog. So, Riot Dog, did you make your vote yesterday? Uh... What? This might be the most important midterm election of our lives. A lot is at stake. Rebel Girl, what the f*** are you talking about? I'm an anarchist. But if you don't vote, you can't complain. And we all know how much you like to complain. Yeah. Listen, even if I thought voting was useful, which I don't, I'm not allowed to vote. See, there you go, complaining again. But I actually didn't know you were disenfranchised. Don't worry, though. With the right people in office, we might be able to pass an amendment giving voting rights back to felons and incarcerated people. There's been so much anti-prison organizing in the last decade, and if we organize that into a serious campaign that pushes for real changes no, and... No, 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 stop, stop, no. It's it's not because I'm a felon. I'm a dog. Oh, right. Dude, why are you talking about voting? What's gotten into you? Well, last episode, you said we couldn't do anything Halloween-y. So this episode, I decided to dress up like a liberal. Oh. Ha ha ha. That's a very cute I voted sticker. Yeah, you you pull it off well. I can't believe you thought I was being sincere. Come on. If voting changed anything, it would be illegal. That goes for not voting, too. Wait, weren't you just cursing at me for saying you should vote? It's not voting itself that gets me. It's the fixation with it as the pinnacle of political participation. When it's literally the least you can do. Vote or don't vote, but don't glorify either as some significant act. I'm not sure I agree with you there. I don't vote because most eligible people don't vote. It's an indictment of the system, and it's a threat. As if we're an army in reserve waiting to rid the world of all these parasitic, useless politicians. Every vote just gives the whole system, the system that put Donald f***ing Trump in power, a veneer of legitimacy. I don't know. I I can kind of see why some revolutionaries might say you should vote. Like, okay, say we are an army, engaged in class warfare against the ruling class. Wouldn't we want some choice over who our enemy's general is, so that we have a better chance of defeating them? But it never goes down that way. When Obama was elected, the anti-war movement didn't escalate. It just dissipated. It's this classic ebb and flow of left resistance. It's in the streets during the first years of a Republican presidency and loses steam when a Democrat is elected. People get placated. Where were the people shutting down airports when Obama was deporting record numbers of undocumented migrants? I don't think people, at least the people I consider our comrades, are saying having Democrats in power solves all of our problems. They're just saying it makes our conditions for struggling a little easier. It gives us more room to breathe. They'd say it's like harm reduction. Listen, things are really bad right now. Probably the worst they've been in my lifetime. But let me quote from an upcoming article about voting in the fifth estate. That's exactly why, now more than ever, we can no longer hide behind the delusion that voting will ever solve our problems. Precisely because it's so bad under Trump, it's urgent that we figure out strategies that will actually work to stop the underlying reasons why he's able to wield such destructive potential. 
which is because we cede our power to the state and rely on elections rather than direct action to solve the problems created when politicians use that power in the ways they always have. Makes sense to me. I'm just tired of the fixation with voting, positive or negative, each time elections come around. Vote if you want, whatever. It takes five minutes. But let's stay focused on the struggles where we can have the most impact. And if people really want to explore all the different anarchist positions on why voting is a disempowering, immobilizing ritual, they can check out Ex-Worker episode number 51, our hour-long audio zine about anarchism, voting, and direct action. Or episodes 47 and 48, which go into more depth about the anarchist critique of democracy itself. You know that statistically, though, your vote doesn't actually count, right? I know. Okay. Can we get on with the show? Ahem. <clears throat> You can find a full transcript of this episode with show notes and useful links at crimethink.com, where we also have a 29 and a half minute version of this episode for standard radio broadcasts and no cussing. And now, the news. One more thing about voting. No! But, speaking of Halloween, the Earth First Newswire reports that last Wednesday, zombies and, quote, a dozen ghoulish pipeline fighters stopped work at a Mountain Valley Pipeline construction site near Blacksburg, Virginia. Their presence halted multiple construction vehicles, including a truck carrying multiple length of the 42-inch diameter pipe. One of the zombies on site stated, We are the living dead. Our birthright of capitalism, global warming, and never-ending extraction is a death sentence. This fact must be realized. These forces must be stopped. Halloween this year also saw a zombie march against university privatization in Bogota, Colombia, where zombies destroyed a police station and other symbols of capitalism, while in the early hours of Samhain, pagans in Michigan treated coyote hunters with some late-night trickery, destroying traps in the woods before bounding away in the night. Also last week, students in solidarity with the No Bayou Bridge pipeline struggle shut down a recruiting event for Morgan Stanley at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. Morgan Stanley is one of the major financiers of the pipeline. In The Hague, Netherlands, 700 people marched behind a banner reading, No Human is Illegal. In Tampa, Florida, nocturnal vandals removed campaign signs for now Governor DeSantis, a vocally racist and xenophobic politician, and then repurposed his signs to spell out, Ice is Slave Catchers outside Tampa's Ice Processing Center. On Saturday in Liverpool, England, 500 anti-fascists prevented a far-right march of so-called patriots. In fact, the 10 or so fascist demonstrators never even made it out of the train station, despite the massive police force there to protect the fash. After Patriot Prayer held a small rally in Seattle on Friday, they got the boot from a local taco joint and bar after customers recognized them and chanted, Nazis go home. Delicious. Also on Friday, in Toronto, over 2,000 anti-racists and anti-fascists disrupted and delayed the start of a so-called debate between pro-capitalist David Frum and far-right former executive of Breitbart News, Steve Bannon. Twelve protesters were arrested. Many of you may have heard about the ongoing struggles across the South against Confederate statues. Many of these statues were erected by the United Daughters of the Confederacy, which have littered the South with hundreds of statues glorifying the Confederate past. And in a stroke of brilliant resistance, when the United Daughters of the Confederacy gathered in Richmond last week for its annual convention, they were met by dozens of protesters demanding that they take their statues back. 
In Los Angeles, the revolutionary abolitionist movement protested Turkish airlines outside of LAX airport for the Turkish state's recently ramped up threats to invade Afrin City, the heart of the westernmost canton in Rojava. In Amsterdam, sympathizers with the ADM squat, which is facing eviction threats, squatted a building in the expensive and touristy red light district. They announced that the upper floors will be used for housing in protest of the affordable housing shortage in the city, while the ground floor will be a meeting and activity space, in protest of the boredom and cultural erasure that comes with gentrification. Meanwhile in Berlin, after two years of anti-gentrification resistance to a planned Google base, including sabotage, protests, and a campaign dubbed Fuck Off Google, the tech giant has abandoned its plans. Well done, unsere Freundin. The whole world hates the Google. Literally! Last week, 20,000 people from New York and Dublin to Seattle and Singapore participated in walkouts from Google workplaces after a report that revealed Google had paid millions of dollars in exit packages to male executives accused of sexual harassment and assault while staying silent about their rapey behavior. While this story is making a big splash and being lauded as unprecedented, we'd like to remind our listeners that just six weeks ago, McDonald's workers in 10 U.S. cities walked off the job to protest sexual harassment at work. Let's not forget about the struggles of those who don't earn six figures, who are living from paycheck to paycheck. As the essay, F*** Abuse, Kill Power, says... Virtually all recent mainstream coverage has treated sexual harassment and assault as an issue distinct from capitalism and hierarchy. Abolishing capitalism and all other systems that concentrate wealth and power into the hands of a few would not put a stop to sexual assault, but it would greatly reduce the coercive economic power that the rich and powerful wield over the rest of us. Without those structural imbalances in power, assaulters would not have the means to manipulate anyone into complicity and silence. This may sound utopian, but it is the only realistic solution if we're serious about combating sexual assault. No system that centralizes wealth and power can prevent that power from being used to coerce or harm people. In New York City, anarchists took this message to the streets outside a procedural hearing in the case of Anna Chambers. They held banners reading, Let's Smash This Rapist Cop State, and Anna Chambers, We Believe You. Long-term listeners of The Hotwire will remember that last year we were tracking the number of times Trump mentioned anarchists. In tweets, the count was two, one after anti-fascists shut down Milo Yiannopoulos in Berkeley, and after the massive anti-capitalist resistance that greeted the G20 in Hamburg. While last year Trump characterized anarchists as thugs, a challenge to the police and military, and even professional, this year on the campaign trail, Trump brought up anti-fascists to make them sound weak and pathetic. You ever see what happens when they take the masks off Antifa? You have guys... You have guys that look like they live with mom and dad in the basement. They live in the basement of mom and dad's home. You know what that is? That's the size of their biceps. But they wear, they wear the tough black outfits. Well, I would never suggest this, but I will tell you, they're so lucky that we're peaceful. 
law enforcement, military, construction workers, bikers for Trump. How about bikers for Trump? So, which is it? Are anti-fascist nefarious thugs or just pathetic? He sounds confused. This reminds me of how white supremacists simultaneously think of themselves as both helpless victims, but also master race. No, they're not confused. They know what they're doing, when to play which card. Antifa are scary and monstrous when we're successful, but we're weak, easy kills after a far-right massacre like Robert Bowers. And I hate to turn this into just another news show that regurgitates whatever Trump says, but his announcement last week to send thousands of troops to the border is a bad sign for anti-fascists also. In his press conference about the deployment, Trump said that troops will consider rocks thrown at them as firearms, meaning they can respond with lethal force. Not long after, when the Nigerian army came under criticism for shooting into a crowd of protesters blocking traffic, they responded by citing Trump's words, showing two things. One, how the escalation of any state's repressive apparatus reinforces governments around the world, and two, how dangerous it could be for protesters here if he successfully establishes yet another precedent for using the military against civilian populations. Take this passage from The Thin Blue Line is a Burning Fuse, an essay from November 2015. Private military contractors who operated in Peshawar are now working in Ferguson, alongside tanks that rolled through Baghdad. For the time being, this is limited to the poorest, blackest neighborhoods. But what seems exceptional in Ferguson today will be commonplace around the country tomorrow. If it becomes normalized for U.S. troops to occupy unruly cities within the territory of the United States and to intervene at the border against unarmed civilians, it will be only a matter of time before those troops are deployed against other populations as well. First, they came for the poor black communities. Then they came for the Muslim immigrants. Then they came for the undocumented immigrants. This list will continue to grow eventually even including white liberals, if things go far enough, the less backlash there is about the deployment of troops at the border, the faster this process will proceed. But even if you're not an anti-fascist or from a demographic already targeted by state violence, there's plenty of reason to oppose border militarization and the repression of those who cross. To explain this in more depth, I'm going to quote from length from the new Crime Think essay, Turning the Army Against the People border militarization, and the migrant caravan. Last week, President Trump ordered thousands of U.S. troops to defend the border, despite the fact that the migrant caravan is weeks away from making it to northern Mexico. Trump and his fellow nationalists and racists have been fear-mongering about the migrant caravan in hopes of mobilizing their base to vote in this week's election. But their efforts have also triggered a wave of fascist violence, including last week's massacre at a synagogue in Pittsburgh, in which the killer specifically cited solidarity with immigrants as one of his motivating factors. In the quarter of a century since the passing of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, globalized capitalism has inflicted grievous damage on the biosphere, indigenous populations, and workers' protections. Industrial production has shifted to the parts of the world where labor is cheapest. So workers in even the wealthiest countries have to compete with workers in other parts of the world to see who can sell themselves the cheapest. In this context, 
It's no longer possible for laborers to gain leverage by organizing on the level of a single factory or even a single country. The global market simply routes around resistance to find a more exploitable population. If we want to defend our interests as workers, we have to make common cause with everyone else around the world who is also exploited. That means that labor organizing has to begin by opposing the border, not just as a line on a map, but above all as a social division that cuts through the population of every country, segregating those with citizenship and travel privileges from those who are denied them. Just like racial divisions, the border serves to prevent workers from uniting to defend their interests against those who exploit them. This is the one-two punch of the complementary Democratic and Republican agendas. The Democrats introduce NAFTA, paving the way for the neoliberal order that is steadily concentrating wealth, while the Republicans are intensifying the violence that preserves that order. Despite Trump's superficial criticism of free trade and his laughable campaign promises to bring factory jobs back to the United States, the president knew from the start that he could not build a time machine and transport the white working class back to 1950. Thus far, all his financial policies have only served to speed the pace at which capitalists like himself are plundering the white working class along with everyone else. What he can do to placate white male workers, however, is adjust the distribution of violence, focusing it even more against people of color, undocumented people, women and queer and trans people than it already is today. Fascists, white nationalists, and nativists desperately need an enemy to rally people against. Their false notion of community only makes sense when they can define themselves by contrast with an other. They're pushing for strong borders as a way to revive identities such as whiteness and patriotism that are fundamentally based on exclusion. If the caravan did not exist, they would have to find another threat to mobilize around. Their project is not particularly popular with the majority of the population. This is why the lone wolf killers, militias, and paramilitary outfits are necessary, not just to terrorize the opposition, but above all to shift the Overton window regarding what sort of discourse is acceptable. For his part, Trump's strategy is always to push the envelope to see how much he can get away with. Trump and his cronies are hoping that people will disapprove of his administration's activities or perhaps just vote against them without taking any concrete action to make it impossible to implement them. Even if you don't identify with refugees on the receiving end of colonialist oppression, even if you don't recognize opposition to the border as a necessary step towards updating the labor movement for the 21st century, you still have every reason to recognize this as your own fight. Some may travel to the border to be there when troops are deployed or when the caravan arrives. But the border is everywhere. Everywhere that an ICE facility operates, everywhere immigrants live in fear of being snatched from their families. Even if you can't travel, you can take meaningful and effective action wherever you are. We have some specific calls for mobilizations on the border at the end of our episode. Last Wednesday, 17-year-old Slavitsky Mikhail Vasilyevich, a student at the Arkhangelsk Polytechnic University in Russia, died after executing a bomb attack at his local FSB headquarters. A year ago, the FSB, Russia's Federal Security Service, initiated a wave of repression, arresting and brutally torturing anarchists in order to force them to sign false statements admitting to participating in a supposed 
terrorist group invented by the Russian authorities. The ensuing crackdowns put tremendous pressure on anarchists around Russia, and it seems that with last week's attack, the FSB has gotten its wish, bullying young Russians into carrying out bombings rather than engaging in public organizing. Before his attack, Vasilyevich left the following message in an anarchist group chat he participated in. Quote, Comrades, now in the FSB building in Arkhangelsk, there will be a terrorist attack, the responsibility for which I take upon myself. The reasons are clear to you. Since the FSB fabricates cases and tortures people, I decided to go for it. Most likely, I will die because of the explosion, because I have initiated the charge directly by pressing the button attached to the bomb cover. Therefore, you are requested to spread information about the terrorist attack, who committed it, and what the reasons were. I wish you to go unswervingly and uncompromisingly towards our goal. Light to you, the future of anarchist communism. While we don't believe that individual attacks on specific authority figures will suffice to abolish the institutional power of the state and capitalism, the Russian state has left precious few alternatives for those who desire a means of bringing about positive change. At the conclusion of a week that has seen a tremendous upswing in authoritarian repression and fascist violence around the world, from Pittsburgh to Brazil, it is time for us to discuss how we can collectively respond to the escalating violence of the state and its fascist supporters. It also bears mentioning that the FSB is directly descended from the KGB, showing the continuity of oppression between state socialism and capitalism. Under Putin and Stalin, under Kennedy and Trump, the machinery of state tyranny remains the same. We respectfully bid farewell to this young man who took a stand against repression, torture, and deceit, doing the best he could with the few options that were available to him. Let's organize together to give people like him a reason to live. And at the very least, please check out repression.com to find out more about the repression in Russia that drove Vasilyevich to carry out his attack. We also want to remember Kevin Garrido, an anarchist in Chile who was recently sentenced to 17 years in prison for placing an explosive device next to a police academy in 2015. On November 2nd, prison guards reported that Garrido was murdered by another prisoner in his facility. While the state may charge this prisoner with murder, we know that the police and prisons are responsible for the conditions that led to Garrido's death. And the only kind of justice for this will come from redirecting any aggression between the oppressed, instead against their oppressors, until neither prisons nor police can function. Two days after Garrido's death, while comrades and family made their way in a caravan to lay Garrido's remains to rest, police vehicles began amassing behind the caravan on the highway, stopping vehicles, running IDs, and eventually tear-gassing and hitting mourners with batons. According to Radio Biobio, a police anti-riot vehicle ran over one of the mourners, resulting in grave injuries, although it does seem that he will live. When the caravan did reach the cemetery, police again attacked mourners there, inside the cemetery. We send our solidarity and condolences to the comrades in Santiago, and we admire your bravery in the face of such brutal repression. Compañero Garrido, presente.
Kite Line is a weekly 30-minute radio program focusing on issues in the prison system. You'll hear news along with stories from prisoners and former prisoners as well as their loved ones. You'll learn what prison is, how it functions, and how it impacts all of us. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand-to-hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. You can hear us on the Channel Zero Network and find out more at kitelineradio.noblogs.org. In this week's Repression Roundup, on January 19, 2017, a Morton County Sheriff's deputy shot Denae activist Marcus Mitchell with a beanbag pellet during the No Dakota Access Pipeline mobilization at Standing Rock. A lead pellet entered Mitchell's left eye socket and shattered the orbital wall of his eye, leading to permanent vision loss in his left eye and partial hearing loss in his left ear. He can no longer feel or taste in parts of his face. His cervical spine was also damaged, leading to extreme bruising of the discs and nerves in the back of his head. Now, a year later, Marcus is being charged for the incident with criminal trespass and obstruction of a government function, which together carry a maximum sentence of two years in prison and a $6,000 fine. His trial is scheduled to start on Thursday in Mandan, North Dakota. We'll bring you any important updates from the trial. Two Polish anarchists are in jail after participating in protests against the European Economic Congress in 2015. Both were sentenced to community service, which they rejected, and now one is serving a two-month sentence. Supporters say that police will not release information about the other detainee and that they do not know where he is imprisoned. Seven activists in Gap, France, are set to go to trial tomorrow after being charged as an organized gang for helping migrants enter the country. In fact, they were participating in a countermarch at the border against a far-right anti-migrant group, Bloc Identitaire. The gang designation was intended to be used against organized crime syndicates, but it is instead being used against these activists. Predictably, only these activists face charges, while the French police have kept their hands off Bloc Identitaire. The Centro de Cultura Libertaria of Casillas Almada, which was founded in 1974 and is the oldest anarchist cultural center in Portugal, is facing eviction due to rampant real estate speculation and gentrification. They are collecting donations to either pay a much higher rate or move to a new space. Either way, they need funds to keep their space open. There's a link to donate in our show notes. Jason Walker, a Texas inmate associated with the 2016 prison strike and a contributor to the fire inside zine, has been moved to the Ellis unit. Jason reported that he's in a block of 300 prisoners who are being given cold showers. And when he complains about this, or anything, they lock him up for several hours in a phone booth-sized cubicle too small to even sit down in. To put pressure on the prison about this cruel treatment, you can ring the warden's office at 936-295-5756 or try emailing the warden at kelly.strong at tdcj.texas.gov. There's a full report written by Jason about the conditions he's enduring at itsgoingdown.org. In a recent update on the ongoing Vaughn 17 trials, Support the Vaughn 17 reports that Roman Shankaris has been severed from his trial group due to ongoing conflict with his lawyer and will be rescheduled for trial at a later date. The state brought extensive witnesses to the stand, 
who all admitted that they didn't know what weapons were used to kill the guard, who made them, when or where they were made, or out of what. So far, there is no evidence beyond cooperating witness testimony. No video, no DNA or forensics has been presented that directly ties any defendant to the guard's killing. All the state has is other prisoners who claim to have witnessed the attack. All prison witnesses were previously potential suspects, and the defense has pointed out their motivation to offer dishonest testimony to cut a deal with the state. We'll continue to update y'all on the Vaughn trial as it goes, and court is ongoing every weekday from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. in courtroom 8B at 500 North King Street, Wilmington, Delaware. More court support is welcome, so if you can go, you should. Seven prisoners at the Toledo Correctional Institution went on hunger strike on November 2nd over the construction of additional solitary confinement cells and moves from the institution to become an all-lockdown facility. Strikers are also protesting inhumane conditions and racist harassment. Supporters of the strikers are calling for a phone zap, especially because strikers have been met with rubber bullets in the past in retaliation. You can call the director of Ohio Corrections at 614-387-0588 or Toledo Correctional Institution at 419-726-7977. We have a sample script in our show notes. The campaign to free the Virgin Island 3 is kicking into high gear. The Virgin Island 3 are Abdul Aziz, Hanif Bey, and Malik Bey. Activists wrongly convicted of murdering eight people at the Rockefeller-owned golf course in St. Croix. They were all in their early 20s when they were rounded up with hundreds of others and forced confessions were obtained. All three were anti-colonial activists resisting U.S. rule of the island. Malik, Hanif, and Abdul have been in prison for 46 years and are just applying for commutation of their sentences. Join with the Philly Anarchist Black Cross to help get them free. Like many aging prisoners, they are experiencing increasing health problems and pose no risk to the society they've been locked away from for nearly half a century. Because the governor's term is ending and he is up for re-election on November 20th, now is the time to contact him and the other decision makers to express support for their commutation applications. Please write a letter in support of their commutation. You can mail email or fax one in we have addresses and numbers on our site as well as the address for the virgin island three and now for prisoner birthdays and next week's news joseph dibby celebrates his birthday on november 10th dibby was arrested this summer in cuba after 12 years of the fbi searching for him and he is accused of participating in earth liberation front arsons Writing to Joseph may only take you a few minutes, but getting your letter could be the highlight of his week. We have his address and a guide to writing prisoners in our show notes. Joseph Dibby is pre-trial, so remember not to write him anything about his case or anything else that could be used against him. We'll close out this episode with next week's news, our calendar of events that you can plug into in real life. Mutual Aid Disaster Relief continues their tour across the Midwest with their two-part workshop on community organizing, disaster relief, and resisting disaster capitalism. This week, you can catch them on November 9th and 10th in Lincoln, Nebraska, and on November 14th and 15th in Kansas City, Missouri. Anarchists in Amsterdam are having their Anarchist Book Fair on November 10th, and the weekend of November 17th and 18th has Anarchist Book Fairs in both Seattle, Washington, and Boston, Massachusetts. 
more at seattleanarchistbookfair.net and bostonanarchistbookfair.org. Lastly, Anarchists in Umeå, Sweden, are hosting their first-ever book fair from November 29th to December 2nd. Anti-fascists in Toronto are calling for a counter-demonstration against Pegida's anti-Muslim, anti-refugee rally on Saturday. That's this Saturday, November 10th, and you can meet at noon in Mel Lastman Square. SOA Watch is holding a border encuentro from November 16th to the 18th in Nogales, Arizona and Mexico around the theme Dismantle Border Imperialism. To mark the 80th anniversary of Kristallnacht and to push back against the uptick in anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and xenophobic violence around the world, Jewish radicals are calling for international days against fascism and anti-Semitism from November 8th to the 11th. The call is using the hashtags anti-fascist fall, cancel them, and outlive them. Answering the call, there is a rally and march in New York City on November 10th at 1 p.m. Meet at 83rd and Lexington Ave. In Chapel Hill, North Carolina, the Jewish anti-fascist network of the Triangle will gather on Saturday night, November 10th, at Peace and Justice Plaza to hold a service for those murdered in the Holocaust and in recent white supremacist and anti-Semitic attacks. Visit outlivethem.wordpress.com for more information. Anti-fascists in Little Rock, Arkansas, are staging a demonstration against the white supremacist National Socialist Movement. On Saturday, November 10th, people will converge on the Capitol steps at 500 Woodlane Street at noon to oppose the neo-Nazis and their calls for genocide and fascism. This month's PDX Brad Movie Night, hosted by Portland Anarchist Black Cross and Oregon Jericho, presents The Gentleman Bank Robber, the story of queer revolutionary and former political prisoner Rita Bo Brown. The screening, followed by a discussion, will be taking place at 6 p.m. on Sunday, November 11th at the Social Justice Action Center at 400 Southeast 12th Ave. There's a Stand Against Proud Boys action in Philadelphia on November 17th at 11 a.m. to counter Proud Boys who are planning to attend a rally called We the People. Meet at Washington Square Park at 6th and Walnut Streets. Anti-fascists in London are hosting a meeting on Monday, November 26th to plan solidarity events for January 19th in support of anti-fascists facing persecution in Russia. The meeting will take place at 6.30 p.m. at Mayday Rooms, located at 88 Fleet Street. On December 17th in Brownsville, Texas, people are planning to meet the migrants at the border, greeting them with food and love. This date is currently tentative as it is unclear when the migrant caravan will actually arrive. Organizers point out that there are five other points of entry on the Texas border the migrant caravan may try and are encouraging people to organize more events. Check out our website for a link to the Facebook event. Lastly, the 2019 Certain Days Freedom for Political Prisoners calendar is now available and makes the perfect stocking stuffer. This year's theme is Health Slash Care and features art and writing from Susie Subways, Ashanti Alston, Micah Bazant, and Debbie Africa. You can order one, or ten, at certaindays.org. And that's it for this Hotwire. As always, thanks to Underground Reverie for the music. You can contact us at podcast at crimethink.com, where you can also find all the links, mailing addresses, and useful notes we customized for this episode. You can subscribe to The Hotwire on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The X Worker. You can listen to us through the Anarchist Podcast Network, Channel Zero. And believe it or not, 
Every Hotwire is radio ready with a 29 and a half minute version found in each episode's show notes. So feel free to put the Hotwire on your local airwaves. If you do, let us know so we can plug your station. Stay informed. Stay rebel. Plug into the Hotwire. <laughs>